right, hey, let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for a sweet morning of, of worship here together as a church. Thank you that we can sing to you and pray to you and, and now look to your word. Lord, thank you that you haven't left us to wonder who you are or what you are like. You have uh, told us in your word. You've revealed yourself to us. And so, Lord, help us now read uh, your word and understand it. Uh, we need your help, Holy Spirit, uh, to open our eyes to understand and then apply these truths to our lives. So would you take this time, use it how you please. Uh, We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Hey, welcome everyone to FBC. Such a a sweet time to be with you. We're glad that you're here uh, on a day when uh, Johnny and Soya and your family uh, are here. We're so glad you're with us. And it's so exciting to see how, again, uh, your generosity and prayers uh, are, are impacting kingdom work uh, outside of these walls, right? Right down in the South Bay and it's such a strategic and exciting ministry. So uh, we're grateful, Johnny and Soya, for what what you're doing. Uh, I want to invite you all now to join me in the book of Acts chapter two, where we're going to continue our sermon series, walking through the book of Acts. We were at the end of chapter two last week, but then talked about how we're going to spend a few weeks here just in these few verses, because we're looking at really this picture of the early church. I mean, really the whole book of Acts is the history of the early church, how after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit came in power, filled the church, and then uh, we see the church move out on mission in the ancient world. That's the story of the book of Acts. But here at the end of chapter two, specifically, we see uh, this snapshot of life in the early church and what they were about. Uh, last week, we started our time by, by pointing out uh, two pieces of data from some recent research about uh, Christianity in America. And the two numbers that stood out were 76 and 8. If you were with us last week, maybe you remember 76 is 76% of Americans claimed to be Christians. They identified on a survey as Christians. They checked the box. I'm a Christian, but only 8% of Americans were found to be following Jesus, meaning they were living in such a way that their lives, their habits, their practices were shaped by and formed by Jesus himself. We notice how that's a pretty striking gap, right? Between 76 and eight. Meaning for a majority of people with some kind of connection to the church, they view being a Christian as a box that you check or a label that you embrace, or maybe some kind of belief that you would affirm on a statement, uh, a piece of paper, uh, but it doesn't have any real impact on the way that you live. There's a massive disconnect. And we've reduced oftentimes following Jesus to a moment or a decision at some point back in our past. And then, hey, we'll see you later in heaven. And we forget about everything in between. What does following Jesus mean for us now? See, when we read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, we see that following Jesus was not just a moment in time, a decision, although that's important. It then became this whole new way of life for followers of Jesus. 
When people came to Jesus and became believers and repented of their sins, it wasn't as if the church said, hey, great, you're saved. You're in the camp. Again, now we'll see you in a few decades when you die. I look forward to being with you in heaven. No, through faith in Jesus is all that. But also you are brought into this whole new way of life. In Acts chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, we see this picture of, of these people who put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They hear the preaching at Pentecost. They are, uh, repent. They trust in Jesus. They're baptized for the forgiveness of sins. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then we see what they were about as a community. So look again at verse 42. It tells us some of these things they were devoted to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We see this list, right? And last week we looked at the first uh, phrase or statement of the list. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we unpacked that all of last week. And then we see a few more words that are used to describe the life of the church. And if we could summarize, I think we could say that they demonstrate that they were devoted to life in community. They were committed to life in community. Look again, verse 42, again, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship. That's a word that I don't hear too often outside of Christian circles. Think about it. Where do you hear the word fellowship? I mean, maybe it's like an academic term. In some cases, maybe in the medical world, it's used. But I don't often hear like my neighbors or friends who aren't Christians saying, like, hey, come over for a time of fellowship, brother. We're going to have some Friday night neighborhood pizza fellowship. Or does anyone you know talk like that who's not a follower of Jesus? Probably not, right? It's kind of an in-house word. Not that that's a bad thing. It's just in, in a Christian context, it's most often used. Now, the Greek word here used is koinonia. Koinonia, that's translated fellowship. This word uh, speaks of a, a deep bond. It speaks of really mutuality. So mutual participation in something. It it speaks uh, of sharing a a common way of life, so to speak. It speaks of sharing life together. In fact, outside of the Bible, when this word was used in the ancient world, it could even speak about uh, the mutuality uh, expressed and demonstrated in a marriage. It could speak of uh, sharing possessions and finances And so the picture of koinonia, of fellowship, it's much deeper than just loose association. Hey, we're kind of casual friends or or know one another. Um, There is this, this deep and profound bond that is shared because of our shared faith in Christ. So we see from the start that following Jesus, right? It's not just about uh, me and, and my private walk with the Lord. It's not just about me, it's about we, right? Following Jesus together. And that, that pushes back on some of our Western individualism because sometimes we think about following Jesus uh, and community, the, the life of the church as kind of like an optional add-on to our Jesus subscription plan. 
You know, like we go to like some like Verizon or Comcast and like, we're glad to set you up with our, our basic Jesus plan. Thank you for your loyalty. Uh, if you'd like for a small charge, uh, we can add uh, uh, to your plan to make it a Jesus premium plan. And that comes with a weekly subscription to community. Would you like to do that? But we see that that's not how it works. Really, the, the, the basic uh, Jesus plan that we're all on through faith in Christ is one that includes community and is inseparable from our relationships together as a church family. I mean, this is just, just basic ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. What do we believe about the church? Well, we see it, it's inherently relational, communal, uh, you look at the New Testament and see the images that are used to describe the church. And what do you see? You see one body with many members. You see a, a building or a temple built together with many bricks, each of us being a brick in the building. You see a new family, right? Not just that we have God as father, but now we have new brothers and sisters in our family, And so here at FBC, to kind of live out this practice of fellowship of Koinonia, we of course have this second core commitment to connect, worship, connect, grow, and go. But one of the the pillars, the core commitments of our church is to connect. We are to share life together, love and serve and support and encourage one another, pray for one another, sharpen and challenge and exhort one another. This is a big part of why we're here and how God has designed his church. Now, we talked about last week a bit about uh, this, this new community that we call the church as they were following Jesus and how it was founded on the apostles' teaching. And that teaching was about Jesus, right? As, as Peter declared in Acts 2, Jesus is Lord. We are called to repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's this teaching about Jesus, but there's also right, this teaching the way of Jesus. Disciples were to learn to obey all that Jesus commanded. And last week we talked about how when we think about what Jesus commanded, uh, what was most important to Jesus in his commands, again, what comes to mind? His command to love, right? Matthew 22, when he was asked, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest, the most important commandment of them all? He responded by saying, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus taught the most important, uh, highest priority, greatest commandment of all, he says it's first to love God, and then the second is like it, to love your neighbor. So in the church, if we're to take Jesus Seriously, at his word, we then are to be a people marked by love. Who live out his command to love. And here within the church, love, as we said last week, is to be the measure of spiritual maturity. Love is the measure of spiritual maturity. Not, not Bible knowledge or church attendance record or, or status, position, role, and rank. No, love is to be the measure of spiritual maturity. And think about the word love. It's an inherently relational word, right? Think about the most loving person you know. 
the person in your life who has most demonstrated love. And then think about what makes you think of them as loving. You know, you got that person in your mind? Maybe it's your mom or a friend or a a teacher or a sibling, a child. I don't know. The most loving person you can think of in life. And then what makes you think of them as loving? Well, again, it's because of how they treated people, right? Maybe it's because of what they did for someone else and you watch them love others. Maybe it's something they did for you and you watch them sacrifice for your good. Uh, they cared for you. Maybe it's about how they went out of their way uh, to, to care for their neighborhood or their community or their, their roommates, right? Love is all about relationships. It's seen and experienced and displayed in relationships. And so to grow as a person of love, to be the people of love that Jesus has called us to be, it's going to take community and relationships, Think about our life together, our church, our fellowship uh, as uh, uh, a gym of love, so to speak. It's like uh, living in community is like going to the gym uh, to train to be someone who loves well. It's, It's in community, it's in relationships that we have to practice things like our relational muscles. They get worked out, right? We learn to forgive we learn to sacrifice for others. We learn to, uh, to commit to one another. We, we practice forbearance and, and patience with, with brothers and sisters. We practice repentance and seeking forgiveness, right? All of these uh, ways that Jesus has called us to live are practiced and lived out in the context of community. Community is our training ground to become people of love. And just like going to the gym, when we start... Uh, we're usually pretty weak and our muscles aren't very trained up and we can't lift a lot of weight, so to speak, or run on the treadmill. But just like going to the gym, right? As you go to the gym more and you lift weights more and you train more and run on the treadmill more or ride on the bike more, you become healthier. And next time when you go back, those muscles are a little bit stronger and you've learned how to do it a little bit better. Do you see the connection? And so life in community is where for, it's where formation happens. It's where we're trained to become people of love. And now some of us in community, again, our training, it's like, um, you know, walking on the treadmill real smoothly, hanging out with some people. And then others of us in the church are like a high intensity spin class that we put each other through. But, but either way, we're, we're, we're all here together growing and learning. But if we just check out, you realize though that if we just check out of community, not only are we missing out on an opportunity to obey the commands of Jesus and love others and encourage others, but we're also then removing ourselves from the most powerful tool of formation that God has given us. And so we'll just remain in isolation and never really learn to, to, to strengthen those muscles of love and care and patience and forbearance and forgiveness and sacrifice and so on that God wants us to be about. Now, we see as the text continues, 
this picture of fellowship and community is, is unpacked. Next week, we're going to look at verses 44 and 45, and we see generosity on display. We see uh, sharing of possessions. We see helping those uh, in need in our midst. That's part of fellowship. But look, look ahead. We're going to skip that for now and look at verse 46. Going on the fellowship theme, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So they're not only meeting in public uh, at the temple as, as Jews, they would go to the temple and continue in worship, but they're also meeting what? In one another's homes. They broke bread in their homes. So this love and fellowship that they shared was not just an, an outdoor thing or a large group thing that, that we're doing here. No, it spilled over into their homes and their, their living room around the kitchen table and so we see that life as a church is to be marked by circles, not just rows. It's not just about rows. Rows are important. What we're doing here is important. But sometimes we say, oh, it's just about rows. So I come into church and I sit in my row and I receive, you know, spiritual content from the pastor up front. And that's like the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. But no, it's about circles, not just rows. It's not just about what happens here. It's about what happens again at home in our living rooms as we uh, have our small groups and Bible studies and, and love one another and share meals together and look one another in the eye and, and sit on the couch or in your, you know, your, your friend's favorite recliner. You get to enjoy that, that uh, night at small group each week. You sit in the big comfy red chair in the corner and have fellowship and talk honestly about what's going on in your life. Not just about content transfer, uh, but about real, honest, here's uh, what the Lord is doing in my life, or here's what I'm struggling with, or here's what I need to confess, or here's what I need your prayers for. It's where we can celebrate the gospel and all that, that Jesus has done for us. It's where we can be transparent and in humility, ask for help and prayer. You see, they're, they're breaking bread in their homes, which uh, it's talking about a meal. They're eating together, which again, it could be easy to gloss over that fact. Oh, cool. They had some, some, some meals together. That's cool. But, but remember in, in the ancient uh, Mediterranean world, you didn't just eat with anyone. You didn't eat with, with most people. You didn't eat with, with strangers. You didn't eat with, with foreigners often. For, for the Jews, they want to do that because they didn't want to risk becoming unclean or defiled by people around their table by association. And for the Greeks and the Romans, uh, often you wouldn't eat with just anyone because it was shameful to hang out with or associate with people who were of a lower social status than you were. People who were slaves or who were poor or who were uh, somehow uh, lived a pretty uh, messy life. This is why the religious leaders got so worked up when they saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. They said, what is he doing? He's not supposed to be associating with them. He's going to become unclean or he's going to think that uh, uh, they're going to think that he approves of their lifestyle. See, this, this table fellowship was a sign of, of friendship. It was a sign of, of close association. And so it's no small thing that they're breaking bread in homes together. And no doubt in this group of the early church, we see people of different uh, ethnicities, languages, background, personality, social status, all sharing a meal as one people. 
and there's joy, there's glad and sincere hearts. It's, it's attractive. We'll see in a few weeks, people are being added to their number. But I think sometimes, again, we just forget how much we need uh, the simple things like relationship. Like people who know us and love us, sharing a good meal around a table. It's how God has designed us. I shared this study years ago, but researchers once did a study on stress using monkeys and how the experiment would go. They'd put a monkey in a cage and then they'd try and basically scare it to death. And so, so, so lights would flash and, and noises would sound and they'd rattle the cage and kind of do all these things. I know some of you are like, this is inhumane, what were they but they did it. And then they, they would, uh, at the end of it, measure the stress hormones in the monkey's brain and bloodstream, okay? Uh, and then they would repeat that same process, but they would make one change. They would insert into the cage a buddy. They, they would add a second monkey to the cage. And so there's two monkeys in the cage and they would repeat the same steps, uh, flashing lights, blaring noise, rattling the cage, trying to scare the monkeys to death. And then they would do the same thing. They would measure the stress hormones uh, in the monkeys. And what they found after doing it a second time, when there's a second monkey in the cage, is that the, the stress hormone levels in the brain and blood of the monkeys was cut in half. So the lone monkey was only half as good at handling stress as the pair was together. Again, no other changes, same circumstances, same storm coming at them. Only difference having a buddy in the cage with you. I think it's fair to say that the same could be true of us humans, right? God has designed us to flourish in community. Uh, simple presence with one another helps us weather the storms that we face. We, we need one another, which raises the question for you, for us, who's your monkey? Do you have a monkey in the cage with you? Have you found your monkeys? Because you need some. We all do. It's how God has designed us in his church to flourish. And so we live this out today in a few ways. One, by, by, by living in, in community, by practicing connection in community groups. Throughout the church, we have, we have once a week gatherings in the evenings, often in people's homes for fellowship, for connection, for prayer, studying the scriptures together. It's a big way that we live this out. So many of you are practicing this and doing this. I want to cheer you on in that. Um, if you're not taking that step to live that out, uh, let us know. We'd love to talk with you about opportunities to join a community group and get you connected. But even if you're not in a community group, you can lean into community at FBC. Part of that is just showing up as you're doing, getting to know one another, praying and encouraging one another in the lobby. Uh, part of that is uh, the simple step of inviting other people into your home. Again, so many of you do this so well. You practice hospitality. Uh, you invite people over for a meal. And I would honestly want to encourage all of us to take that step in the next few weeks. Maybe that could be an application point, an invite challenge to everyone. Uh, would you extend or receive an invitation to share a meal uh, in someone's home? 
Can we practice love and hospitality and fellowship that way? Again, hospitality is not about how well you can cook a steak. Um, hospitality is not how, how big or, or you know, beautiful your home is if it's out of an anthropology magazine or something. Um, hospitality is simply about a spirit of making people feel welcome around you. And so you can do that in a one-bedroom tiny apartment. You can do that with a box of mac and cheese and a loaf of bread. Um, we all can practice hospitality, inviting others in for relationship, as the early church did as well. We got to be honest, though, this doesn't always come easy for us, does it? It's hard for us to live in community for a number of reasons we'll talk about later. I came across this quote recently that I liked that I wanted to share. It says, nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. <clears throat> I'm in my 30s and this hit, hits home, right? As, as we get older, often our social, social circles get smaller and it's hard for us to, to make time for friends in authentic relationship uh, in the way that maybe we had as we were kids or in high school or so on. <clears throat> so we see then that, that the church is really this beautiful and, and amazing gift. What a joy it is to, to be able to come here on Sunday, plug into a church, and then have instant family. People of, of all stages of life all ages, uh, fellowshipping one another on a weekly basis with one another, and then also the opportunity to meet in homes and grow in friendship and relationship. It's really a beautiful picture. So we see that they're living together in community. They're practicing life in community, but they're also practicing worship in community. You see this again in verse 42, as it says, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There's these specific acts of devotion and worship that are mentioned. Breaking of bread uh, can refer to a normal meal, like we just talked about, having someone in your home for dinner. Uh, But in the New Testament, often we see the breaking of bread mentioned. It's a reference to this special family meal of the church that we sometimes call the Lord's Supper or communion. It's where believers would take the ordinary elements of a meal as Jesus told his disciples to do. And they would take the bread at the start of the meal and they would break it and give thanks and remember that the broken bread represents the body of Jesus given for us on the cross. And then they would take the cup later in the meal and remember how Jesus declared that this cup was the new covenant in his blood poured out for us. And as they take these elements, as they gather, they're proclaiming his death until he returns. They're reminded of their unity as a church and what it is that makes them one. It's the blood of Christ. It's the gospel that binds us together. And often in the life of the church, in history, the taking of the Lord's Supper or communion was done as a full meal. We see that displayed in the early church. Nowadays, we just use a little wafer and the packet. What's up? That works. Um, it's, it's a little different, but it's still the same practice. Remembering the truths of the gospel, the cross, our salvation through the work of Jesus. Now, you'll notice that that those two things, worship and fellowship, are are connected. The vertical um, always affects the horizontal. 
they're connected because if we've experienced the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and, and the welcome of God in Christ, that's going to change the way that we live and treat other people. Uh, the scriptures make clear this, this connection. Romans 15, 7, one example. It says that we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So we're to reflect on the gospel that Jesus has welcomed us. He's invited us. He says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. He invites us to come and find life in him and the forgiveness of our sins. And he, he brings us into his family through no work of our own as Christ has welcomed you. You then go and welcome one another. You've experienced great love and grace and mercy. You are to then extend that to others in the name of Jesus. Or Ephesians 4, 32, it says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Same idea. Think about how God in Christ has forgiven you. He's washed your sins away. He hasn't, he hasn't uh, hold, held a grudge or held on to your sin or made you repay him for all the wrongs that you have done as if you could. No, he's forgiven you freely when you trust in him. And so then forgive one another. Don't hold those sins against one another over them. Forgive them, release them from the debt that they owe you as God and Christ has forgiven you. Or think of the words of Jesus in John 13, 34, love one another as I have loved you. We think about how, how God has loved us with a sacrificial love going to the cross for us. Remember how God in Christ has forgiven us, loved us, lavished his mercy upon us, gone out of his way, left the comforts of heaven to save us. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus says. Again, in the kingdom, grace and love is given, not earned. It's a gift to be received, not a reward or prize to be worked for. And so we see they're living in community and they're worshiping community, taking the Lord's Supper remembering the gospel. It also says they're devoted to prayer in verse 42. We've been trying more and more to make prayer together a necessary part of our services, practicing that as a large group. We have our, our prayer team uh, every week up front available after the service to pray with those who have needs. Uh, we've been praying for God's work in the world, praying for for Johnny and Soya and their, their ministry in Santa Clara. We pray for our ministry teams, our volunteers and their impact. We pray for our, our, our city, the city of Benicia, our community, our uh, current cultural matters, our, our leaders and so on. Because when we pray, it models dependence upon God. Right? When we pray, it's us acknowledging, hey, we don't have it all together. Hey, we don't have all the answers. Hey, don't, we don't have everything we need in our own strength to do the things that we are called to do. And so, Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you to come and do your work in our hearts. We need you to come and heal us. We need you to come and change us. We need you to come and be at work in our world. We pray for your kingdom to come. Or we don't want to be a church that just says, look at us. Look at how well polished we are up here. I mean, we've, we've figured things out. 
We got those like two cool blue lights up here. Look at us. We are rolling. Come on. Look at us. We figure ministry out and look at this impact in the community in this full room. Wow, isn't that so great? No, when we practice prayer, it's, it's, it's practicing and modeling dependence upon the Lord. That we are a needy people, a dependent people, dependent each day, each week on the grace and mercy of God and his spirit. Pastor Mark Dever has this great quote. It stings a little bit. Warning. This is a great quote about prayer and, and prayer together. He says to pastors, spend so much time in your worship service praying that people who only pretend to believe in God get bored by it. So again, spend so much time in your worship service praying that people who only pretend to believe in God get bored by it. Oh, that we would have a heart for prayer. That we would realize prayer for what it is, the gift that it is to come before the living God, seated on his throne in heaven. And this God loves us and he knows what we need before we ask him. And he hears our prayers and he responds to our prayers in his mercy and in his grace. It's nothing less than an encounter with the living God. So they live in community. They worship in community. Verse 42 lays it out. Fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But we also need to talk this morning about some barriers to life together before we close. Because there's some things that get in the way, right? <clears throat> some of the barriers to life together, one would be idealism. Here's how this works. Um, we have our picture of how the church should look, how it should work. And then we see what our church actually looks like and how it actually works. And we get grumpy. And we get impatient because things or people don't look or act the way they should around here. I'm not saying because the church has strayed doctrinally or lost its mission, that would be a valid concern, absolutely. But it's because our personal preferences aren't met. Or because people around us are messier than we want them to be. And they're a little harder to love than we wish they were. And we forget that the church already has an accuser and she doesn't need another one. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. See, in our idealism, we often love our dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself. We love what the church should look like more than we love the church as it is. And others don't measure up to our standards and things aren't quite good enough around here. 
Now, of course, don't hear me wrong. We need to spur one another on towards love and good works and encourage one another and build one another up and sharpen one another. I'm not advocating ambivalence. I'm just advocating for mercy and, and patience as we together learn to follow Jesus imperfectly. So idealism is a barrier. Individualism is a barrier. We won't spend a lot of time here because we talked about this a lot last week, right? How we, we value freedom and we value community, but most of the time we can't have both. And we'll sacrifice community on the altar of freedom because freedom is more important for us. We want to do what we want, when we want, um, and, and schedule our lives how we want. And we don't realize that in doing so, we're sabotaging our deep desire for community, Idealism, individualism, and lastly, we'll just talk about sin. Let's be honest, the the church can be a messy place. We sin against one another. We wound one another. I know that so many of us have stories uh, of life in the church and, and, and broken relationships in the church and wounds in the church. And we carry those around with us and they weigh heavy on us. And, here, and here's what kind of happens. I shared this illustration before, but it's helpful. We're like this guy. That's what you look like. No, I'm just kidding. That's what we all look like. No, hear me out. We're like this, this dear brother from Braveheart. Um, if you've seen the movie, he, during one epic battle scene, gets shot with an arrow. And uh, it doesn't kill him, but it's uncomfortable. But he's in the heat of a battle. And so he can't like run to the medical unit or whatever they had back then and, and take the arrow out quite yet. And so he just breaks the arrow off and he leaves it in his chest, just kind of sticking out most of it or part of it. And he keeps fighting. He runs around. Ah. And, and that's kind of what we do is we're uh, living as Christians and we get wounded and we have arrows in us. But rather than, than actually taking the arrow out and seeking healing from our wounds, we just kind of like break it off and keep marching. And so we're all walking around with these kind of these wounds and arrows in us. And then what happens is we get close to one another in community. We all have our wounds and then we run into each other. And we re-aggravate those wounds that haven't fully healed. When they get opened up again, we're hurt again. Something that is said or done triggers an old experience that never was fully dealt with. And so in light of this, sometimes we're like, it's just too painful. Right? I have this wound and, and, and bumping up against people in community, it's just going to hurt again. And so we're tempted to withdraw. The irony, though, in this story, at least, is that this brother was wounded on the field of battle by another person, but it also required other people to take the wound out, to take the arrow out. And so after the battle scene, his friends gather around him and they probably give him some alcohol or something. They hold him down and he's like, ah, and they, they pull the arrow out. He needed help getting the arrow out. And the same is true in our lives, right? Often we're, our greatest wounds come from relationships and community, but also our greatest potential for healing comes in community, where we, we love one another, we help one another process the things that we've been through. Of course, we do this all uh, looking to the Lord, asking for his help and his healing to come and, and fill our hearts. 
And so maybe today would be an encouragement if, um, if there's something pointed in your life, maybe an arrow that's still left in to bring that before the Lord in prayer. Perhaps ask uh, someone for, for help uh, in extending forgiveness or processing, talking with, uh, with someone through that. Uh, perhaps if you've been the one doing the wounding, flinging arrows all around, um, this could be an invitation to practice repentance and seeking forgiveness for those that you've wronged with, with harsh words or selfish actions, whatever it might be. May we be a people of repentance. And so with this early church, we see this blueprint, this model, life in community as followers of Jesus, worship in community as followers of Jesus. Uh, may we be a people that overcome the barriers to that and live this out today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for the truth of the gospel that you have loved us, saved us, forgiven us of all our sin and the foundation of our community and our life together uh, is you. You are the cornerstone upon which this uh, whole structure is built. And so Lord Jesus, I pray today you'd help us experience your love and healing in our lives afresh. And I pray you'd help us extend this, this love and, and grace and welcome uh, to those around us. Help us live together in a way that glorifies you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.